Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. I've been thinking a lot about labels and titles lately. For instance, if I say federal prosecutor, what do you think? I thought, oh my God, his clothes are too tight. You know, this guy is intense. And a federal judge? He had this maniacal obsession about punctuality. And if you were five, ten minutes late, you were dead meat. How about a defense attorney? Always dressed to the nines, put together. You know, had a real presence about him. Again, a little bit of I've arrived. I represent the big guys. And then, what if I ask you to picture a bank robber? I'm not trying to be a drug dealer. I need money. The bank had the money. And I rationale that the bank was insured. Well, none of the stereotypical images you may have conjured up are right. Or maybe they're partially right. I don't know. What I do know, in this story, nothing is black and white. This story, this third season of Somebody Somewhere, is most assuredly gray. This is episode one of season three, Gray. I'm your host, David Payne. It's been 10 years since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. The story of the mysterious death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003 has been well chronicled, even if it's not widely remembered outside of the Baltimore and D.C. corridor. You can Google it if you want and find countless articles and Reddit threads about Luna's death. And so when a listener suggested my partner in crime, Jody Gottlieb, and I look into this case for season three, to be honest, I wasn't that intrigued. My own impression of what happened to Luna had been forged by vaguely remembered newspaper articles that left the distinct impression he was killed for some personal reason, maybe an ex-lover or something. The thing is, when we took the time to look at the sourcing of these stories and the publicly available evidence, I realized what an injustice had been done to Jonathan Luna. And with the blinders down, the gloves are off. It was December of 2003. The 38-year-old Luna was prosecuting two suspected heroin dealers in Baltimore. He was working late crafting plea deals when without his glasses, which he apparently needed to drive, or his cell phone, he left the courthouse and drove a mysterious path through four states, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, before getting off the Pennsylvania Turnpike in Lancaster County. That was reporting by Ali Lanyon of Baltimore's WHTM on the 10-year anniversary of Jonathan Luna's unsolved death. 
As with most stories about Jonathan, it starts with the oddly circuitous and apparently aimless drive he took in the final hours of his life. A drive that took him from the Baltimore Federal Courthouse at 11.38 p.m. to a creek bed in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in the middle of the night. The exact route is chronicled and detailed in a well-researched book written by Bill Kiesling called The Midnight Ride of Jonathan Luna. The route, or as Kiesling calls it, the ride, is one of the few pieces of information the FBI has ever released in the case. The relevance and meaning of that drive and what happened en route has been the fodder of many investigators, journalists, and the Baltimore legal community long before us, but it's not where we will start. For the measure of this man is not what happened in his last few hours, but what he accomplished and who he touched in the preceding 38 years. Everybody was his friend. I mean, and I, I don't want to sound cliche because it was really true. And I remember it. A... That's Jonathan Braun. He's a senior staff attorney at the North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services and one of Jonathan's law school friends. I thought of Jonathan when he was first in school as being my closest friend at school, but I think that was true with lots of people probably thought that too. He was just somebody who just easily seemed to make friends, was easily popular, was easily, you know. If you've been with us since the beginning of this podcast, Braun's sentiments will ring eerily reminiscent to comments made by Tom Wales's friends, the federal prosecutor whose unsolved murder was the subject of season one. You know, it was a joke that Tom had 12 best friends, but all these best friends showed up at his service, you know, and everybody was Tom's best friend, and he wondered, how did this guy have time for everything? But in Jonathan Luna and Tom Wales, two men who had the same title that marked them among the nation's most elite prosecutors, you couldn't find two more different men. I met Jonathan. Jonathan and I were both started law school in 1988. And I believe it was in my criminal law class. I noticed he had a button that I believe it was Bozo the Clown with a red marker, which I immediately took as an interpretation as an anti-Reagan person. So we sat down and started talking about politics and about beginning to law school and about the fact that there weren't a lot of people that seemed to be that interested in politics. So Jonathan and I sort of bonded over that. And while Tom Wales was also liberal in his politics, he was, quite frankly, a bit uptight and often prickly. A blue-blooded East Coast wasp who roomed with Bobby Kennedy's son and went to Harvard before trying his fortunes out west in Seattle. Jonathan Luna, by contrast, was an easygoing, charismatic black man who was raised in the South Bronx projects, overcoming massive odds to be the first in his family to graduate from college and then law school. And even though the two prosecutors' lives were radically different, their untimely deaths would forever link them as the only two AUSAs potentially killed in the line of duty. I mean, he was a bright light. He was a special one with so much potential. So smart and talented and beloved that it's a shame. It's a shame that he's no longer with us. Reggie Shuford was also one of Jonathan's good friends. In fact, it's more accurate to say he was probably his best friend in law school. 
we had kind of a similar set of values and goals and interests, etc. But we we were different, and a lot of that difference had to do with him being from the Bronx, New York, and me being from North Carolina. I'm mm-hmm. always fascinated by the South. Jody and I both lived there for 20 some years, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Jonathan Luna's experience in the South coming in from New York. Yeah, I mean, and so Jody, I'm not quite sure where you lived in the South. Charleston, Atlanta. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff in the South. It's very charming, often very beautiful, and the gentility can be really charming too, until you learn that it sometimes masks a deeper feeling of hostility or animosity. (laughs) There's a certain level of kind of at least surface kindness. And so certainly some of those values were instilled in me as a child, like treat people well. So fast forward from kind of growing up there and then being in law school and then meeting Jonathan, who was likewise, you know, his mother had been from North Carolina too, I believe. And so he too had been instilled with some of those values and was just, you know, a nice, guy very popular and outgoing and with a ready smile and but you know we were different i ultimately appreciated it this difference in geographical upbringing a difference between two of just a handful of black students at unc law who were both impressive and popular enough to be elected class president in succeeding years was reflected in metaphorical form when jonathan would bring the village voice home from new york I would be scandalized reading that paper and we would have conversations because he would always be interested in, you know, returning back north. And I was like, I could never live in New York. Like, this is far too much for me. But, you know, we were different in a lot of ways, you know, similar in the most fundamental ways about values and family and social justice. But in terms of (laughs) having grown up, he was far more worldly than I was. The life experience contrast in the two best friends also manifested itself in the very different career decisions they made. With Reggie opting for a career in civil rights law, principally at the ACLU, and Jonathan becoming part of the state system that would often be the oppressor of those very rights. One of the things that I'm curious about is Jonathan's decision to go into being a prosecutor. I was a little surprise, frankly. So I don't know that he ever told me directly what he intended to do. And I do fully appreciate it when people say, we need people in every field of the law to do some good for our people. Did Jonathan ever overtly talk about that? Or was that just something he did We ultimately did talk about it because I was inquisitive. (laughs) I wanted to know, dude, what's up? Because he had worked for a federal judge and worked for a huge law firm and then for the federal government. And I just was surprised. So we absolutely had those conversations. And I understood having grown up in the particular neighborhood that he grew up in. Some crime was happening there. Uh, His parents lived there and his brother lived there still and he wanted to make sure that they were protected. I ultimately appreciated it, but I would be not necessarily completely honest if I said that all of my ideas about prosecutors have changed. 
Reggie's skepticism about prosecutors in general and his best friend's decision to become one of them is really emblematic of what this season's story is about. You cannot judge a person by his title or maybe even his choices. And the best among us, the people we look up to and respect the most, are people who demonstrate the capacity to evolve and change. This is a little bit of an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Jonathan was 38 when he died. What do you think he would be doing now in this moment if he were here with us? Wow. He would still be excelling at work. I'm wondering if he would have stopped being a U.S. attorney and done something different, but certainly fighting for justice on behalf of folks who are traditionally marginalized. And he still would have been a family man, first and foremost. His kids, his parents, and his good friends would have continued to be his top priority. We will, of course, never know what direction Jonathan's life would have taken had he lived. But from the perspective of the people who knew him the best, there was unanimity that Jonathan, who was the father of two young children and husband to a talented and beautiful doctor, was a dedicated family man whose life revolved around his family. And that's important to understand because of what I'm gonna tell you next. Because the question of what happened to Jonathan Luna the night he went missing has many theories. But the most predominant theory floated by FBI officials in unofficial leaks, the theory that I'm having a hard time reconciling with the man I was learning Jonathan to be, the theory I can't quite square with the known physical evidence, physical evidence that includes 36 stab wounds, two people's blood, and a four-hour car ride through four states in the middle of the night. The theory that the FBI has left hanging out there to the wind is that 38-year-old father of two, Jonathan Paul Luna, committed suicide. The way this case evolved was half of the people working on the case thought it was homicide, half thought it wasn't. It was suicide. And it just kind of went on like that. And it's never had a resolution. To this day, it does not have a resolution. Jane Miller is a well-known investigative reporter for WBAL in Baltimore. She's been covering the Baltimore legal scene for decades. She knows everybody and has deep federal sources. And because Jane was literally at the courthouse the day Jonathan died, she can take us back to where we need to go to begin to understand this mystery. And it was one of those kinds of stories that started, there started to be this kind of rumor going around that day that this federal prosecutor had disappeared. And then there was also the rumor that the, his body had been found. But at any rate, the, uh, the U.S. attorney held a news conference late that afternoon. And what then wow. started to unfold was this really unusual story of a federal prosecutor who was in the courthouse in Baltimore, who was in trial of a drug dealing case and left his office that night. If I recall correctly, his glasses were left on the desk. It was really weird. And the information didn't come all at once, but in pieces, in chunks of information. And, you know, they used toll records to create this chronology and path that he took that night, which was in itself odd. 
because he went north, he went into New Jersey, he came back, and then ultimately his body is found in a shallow creek off an exit near Reading, Pennsylvania, just off the turnpike. So it's pretty remote area, not a lot of people around. And he suffered about three dozen stab wounds. The path that led Jonathan to that shallow creek in Pennsylvania that night was recreated by the FBI using toll records from the Easy Pass in his 2003 Honda Accord. And because it is obviously relevant to whether he was murdered or killed himself, we'll take a moment to highlight its contours. So they did release a timeline with a map. Yeah. It is a really weird route. I'm telling you what. And he left at 1138. Took him 11 minutes to get through the tunnel. That's about right. Yeah, everything's on on time. Then he goes all the way when Jonathan leaves the parking garage at 11.38 p.m. that night, we don't know if he's alone or not. Rather than head home, Jonathan gets on I-95 and heads northeast out of town. After making his way through the Fort McHenry Tunnel at 11.49 p.m., Jonathan continues north on I-95, past both the Perryville, Maryland Toll Plaza and the Delaware State Line Toll Booth. At 12.57 a.m., he stops at the JFK Plaza rest stop in Newark, Delaware, where his debit card is used at one of Wachovia's ATMs. You know about the rest stop? Mm-hmm. That was the Delaware rest stop. Yep. That's where he stopped to make a cash withdrawal from an ATM. Correct. And they believe that if he met anybody, that's where it was. The next entry in the FBI's timeline is 2.37 a.m., when Jonathan enters the New Jersey Turnpike from Route 130 at Exit 6A. There's a bit of an unexplained time after one o'clock in the morning until the next toll mark, because it doesn't take that long to do that. So something went on between 1257 at the service plaza where he used his debit card and where he got on the turnpike at Exit 6A. At 2.47 a.m., Jonathan enters the Pennsylvania Turnpike at exit 359. 33 minutes later, he stops again, this time at the Peter J. Cameo rest stop, where he purchases gas and soft drinks. And ultimately stopped at a gas station near King of Prussia and bought two beverages, further suggesting someone else was traveling with him, blah, blah, blah. And then it was 43 miles, and two hours later, his car and body were found really early in the morning. And that came from sources. That was definitely part of that story at that point. At 4.04 a.m., Luna's car leaves the turnpike at exit 286, the Reading-Lancaster Exchange. He uses a paper toll ticket for this exit. It has his blood on it. An hour and a half later, at 5.50 a.m., Jonathan is found lying face down in a creek next to his car on the grounds of a well drilling company in Lancaster County, PA. There is cash strewn around the car and a large pool of blood on the right rear floor of his Honda. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. Seventeen years later, we still have no idea how or why Jonathan Luna ended up in that ditch with 36 stab wounds to his body. 
and the mystery of his final hours continued to haunt those who are drawn to his story. So a year later, I did a story which kind of wraps up all of that that we were just talking about. There was something, the question is what Luna was doing after he withdrew money from ATM at a Delaware rest stop until he entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which was an hour and 50 minute period. We never had an answer to that. So what was he doing? Part of it feels like he was wandering around, like what am I gonna do? Which was weird given the context of the evening Jonathan went missing. Directly in front of him was a clear to-do list. Earlier that evening, he had come to a verbal agreement with two defense attorneys to plead out the drug case they were in the middle of. Jonathan then went home to have dinner with his family before returning to the office at 9.30 p.m. to draft the plea agreements that would be needed in court the next morning. And before finishing the paperwork, some two hours later, still dressed in his suit from court, he gets up from his desk, goes to the parking garage, and leaves, heading north on I-95 away from his house without critical personal belongings. I'm trying to remember if he left his cell phone. I want to say he left his cell phone. He did. He did. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that's just really, which to me, you leave your cell phone when you don't want somebody to contact you. Yeah. You also don't was, want people to track you. That's right. And by that time, there was some science of that or some technology of that. He was in the middle of literally drafting the plea deal. Do you remember right. what the discussion was about that? What could possibly be the that reason he, for that? The, the, the speculation was that he left in a heck of a hurry, like, you know, an emergency. That's what this guy And the reason there was speculation then, as there is to this day, is that other than the release of the mysterious route, neither the FBI nor the U.S. Attorney's Office has officially released anything that might help solve the mystery of what happened that night. Instead, they have selectively leaked information to reporters. So what happens is you get local federal law enforcement and then you get national federal law enforcement, which has always been the case. So you always figure some of the information is coming out of headquarters in Washington, and some of the information comes locally with both the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI. Did you ask any of the sources about video or stills associated with this car ride? I think they did have some stills. Nothing that's been released publicly. I thought we, I thought we had a picture of his car. Yeah, Not you know, from you might that be right. scene that night. Well, that was 2003, where we didn't have cameras all over the place on highways like we do now. We did have cameras at the courthouse. It was after 2001. Yes, and he was on camera leaving the courthouse. Have you seen those videos or not? No. Have any of your sources ever talked about the phone records from his cell phone that night? Um, no. There were rumors that there was a car that followed him out of the courthouse. Yeah, I think I remember that, but it was never verified. We can never get it confirmed. We, we never, I never had anybody confirm that with that I felt comfortable with. Yeah. It had every opportunity to be a real mystery because there was so little confirmed information. We just didn't have that. To this day, we don't have that. And while reporters had a hard time pinning down their federal sources on details, that didn't stop those same sources from leaking disparaging and unverified theories about what happened to Jonathan, like maybe he killed himself, that had the effect of shifting responsibility away from them for solving the crime. 
You can turn yourself in knots evaluating the evidence, but also trying to understand where the sourcing for that information is and looking at that with the And what, well, because sources always have an emotive. Exactly. You always have to kind of decide what is your emotive for that releasing. And one obvious motive was the FBI was embarrassed by their inability to solve the murder of a federal law enforcement official. For if a prosecutor can be killed in the line of duty, the system fails. But if Jonathan was killed for some personal reason, or if he committed suicide by stabbing himself 36 times and stumbling into a creek, well, that wasn't really the FBI's problem, was it? And if the case is technically open and unsolved, then you don't have to release any information to the public. Anytime you have a high-profile case that goes on and on and on without clear indicators of this is what happened, yes, it's homicide, this is our person of interest, this is a motive, you just have this wide open arena for everybody to have their own theory. Everybody can attach their own significance to each one of those disparate pieces. And while avoiding embarrassing failures is always fertile ground for distraction, the FBI may have had another motive for not wanting to solve this case. For a year before his death, Jonathan was prosecuting a bank robber named Nako Brown. After the case was submitted to the jury, the cash evidence, which was under FBI control, went missing and was never recovered. I mean, that doesn't happen. You don't have situations where the cash evidence in a bank robbery case walks out of the courthouse, and that's what happened, somehow. The story that floated around at the time the money was missing was because the FBI hadn't secured it properly. So there was some embarrassment to the FBI because of that case. The case really doesn't make anybody look good. No, that's correct. What was the scuttlebutt around the courthouse, around what happened with that missing money? The scuttlebutt was somebody really screwed up, and in particular, an FBI agent, because they were the ones in charge of it. Jane, what is it that we haven't talked about that you think is important for our listeners? I think what people should understand is that for someone to just up and, first of all, poof, leave the office that night, phone behind, for a reason no one can detect or no one could at least share publicly, and then to be found in a really unusual place with multiple stab wounds, and laying in a creek is, it's an extraordinary mystery, but it's also an extraordinary human story of what was going on with him that would cause such behavior and ultimately this fatal end to his life. Coming up this season on Somebody Somewhere, the last person that wants Jonathan Luna to be killed was my client. None of us is defined by the worst things we've ever done. He said, man, I be praying in the spirit and I see things. So, you know, we're like, yeah, all right, whatever. Jonathan is like really pressing me to work this case out. And that's the last time I saw Jonathan alive. There goes the devil telling me to lie again. Tis I'm around me, say 
'Cause it's alright to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry, but I just want you to love people. more money